Father, we know that uh, there, there is nothing of any eternal value that will happen here this morning without your Holy Spirit's power. And so we ask you to pour out your Spirit on this place, on, on this uh, message. I pray that you'll speak through uh, this weak vessel this morning and uh, also that you'll, you'll open our hearts to be receptive to your Word and uh, that, that you'll allow us to see clearly how you use hardships and difficulties in our lives and, uh, and what your purpose is in all of that. And we ask these things in, in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In doing some of the study for this message, I ran across a, a pamphlet that you, you may be very interested in. That The subject is, uh, I'm going to give you the title. The, the title is uh, Secret Techniques to Get Rid of Sadness. It's a long title. Secret Techniques to Get Rid of Sadness. Stop Suffering from Sadness with Ultimate Sadness Reduction Techniques and be happy for the rest of your life. Well, that's a pretty bold promise. And, uh, and better yet, it, that pamphlet is available for 99 cents on Kindle. I sprung for 99 cents. I couldn't resist. <laughs> so you don't have to. One of the chapter headings I noticed in, in there, it took me about 10 minutes to read it, <clears throat> and uh, one of the chapter headings in there was uh, hope for the best but expect the worst. How's that for a warm fuzzy? Wrap yourself up in that. Is that com- you find that comforting? But that's uh, symptomatic or it's uh, indicative, I think, of how our culture manages hardship and uh, suffering and grief. We, we just uh, put a happy face on it. We manage the symptoms and uh, I, I think God does a lot better than that. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Suffering comes in so many varieties. Life-threatening illness, uh, financial setbacks, broken relationships, divorces, a prodigal son or, a, or daughter, a lost job, a, a lost dream, a dark depression that sometimes lasts for months and, and years. All those are different kinds of suffering. And uh, we want to read a little bit about what, what God says about how he uses suffering in our lives this morning. And I'm gonna, uh, we're going to read that out of James 1. James 1, 1 through 12. James speaks to that. James 1, 1 through 12. I'm using the English Standard Version, and that's the same version that's in your pew, same version that will be up on the screen. Uh, James 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. What he means by that is that uh, he's writing to the Jews, uh, but he's writing to Jews that have been dispersed from Jerusalem and and are all over the then known world. So he's addressing that target audience. He says this about, about faith and suffering. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's one of those wait what moments. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, that is wisdom about what you're going through. If any, if any of you lacks wisdom about what you're going through in that particular moment, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So ask in faith, in other words. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation let the, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The, the uh, point of those couple verses is don't focus your, your, your life and your, don't focus your heart on the things of this world because they're passing away. They're, they're going to be irrelevant in, in eternity. So uh, it, it's easy to arrive at the end of your life if, if uh, you focused on just material things and on the pursuits of this life and realize that you had your ladder up against the wrong wall. And, and that's the point in those couple verses. Last verse is verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, it matters how we suffer. It matters for eternity how we go through the hardships of life. And that's one of the, the most important messages of, uh, of this morning, is that there is purpose for us in suffering. Uh, Dawkins, the uh, atheist, says it's all random. He, he said whatever happens to you is random. And, and so whatever happens to you really has no meaning no meaning because you're going to be here and then you're going to be gone and, and nobody will remember you anyway. So anything that happens to you in the way of hardship is just irrelevant. That's not much of a comfort either. I want to explore a couple myths about uh, suffering and Christians. First of all, that Christians are immune from hardship and suffering and entitled to an easy life. We don't always say that, but sometimes we think it. Tim Keller, in uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, puts it this way. He says, The implicit but strong cultural assumption of young adults is that, and older adults, I might add, is that God owes all but the most villainous people a comfortable life. This premise, however, inevitably leads to bitter disillusionment. Life is nasty, hard, brutish, and always feels too short. The presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion when things in life inevitably go wrong. M. Scott Peck, in the, the book The Road Less Traveled, which I probably read 25 years ago at least. It's been on the bestseller list a long time. Yeah, the, the first three words in that book are, life is difficult. Life is difficult. And Peck goes on to say that if we engage life with the expectation that God is obligated to make our lives comfortable and convenient because we're Christians, we set our, ourselves up for discouragement when we encounter the inevitable difficulties and hardships of life. If, on the other hand, we recognize that life is inherently difficult and that we need to walk with God through those difficult times, we'll be much better prepared to weather those storms. In, in other words, dealing with hardship and difficulty in our lives, uh, expectations are everything. The idea that uh, Christians have immunity from suffering is, is really just bad theology. James 1-2, if you'll notice, says that 
uh, we're supposed to consider it all joy. That's supposed to be our attitude toward suffering and hardship. Uh, not if, James says, not if, but when. Not if, but when we encounter various trials. Jesus was clear about that too. In John 16, he says this, I've told you these things so that, get this, in me you might have peace. In me you might have peace. He says, in this world you will have trouble. He doesn't say you might hit a couple speed bumps. No, he says you will have trouble in this world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And finally, the psalmist in Psalm 34, and I, and I, I like the way the, uh, the Living Bible paraphrase renders it. He, he says, Psalm 34, 19, the good man does not escape all troubles. He has them too. But the Lord helps him in each and every one. So scripture is clear that as followers of Christ, uh, we can't expect suffering and pain in life. We're not exempt from that. Myth number two is that hardship and trials are punishment from God. And I, I often encounter that when somebody's in the midst of uh, intense pain, uh, emotional pain, physical pain, whatever. Sometimes we lose our perspective and we think, well, God's punishing us for something. And that was certainly the Jewish mindset. That's why James addressed it here. Uh, among the Jews of the, of the day, uh, they thought that, that uh, material wealth and physical health equated to God's favor and that uh, 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 ill health or disability and poverty equated to God's disfavor. James is saying that's, that's not the case. And, and Paul says the same thing in Romans 8.1 where he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, uh, we've already uh, been judged not guilty. We're justified. And if we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we're, we're declared not guilty by God. And there is no more punishment. We're holy because of the work that Christ has done for us. And Christ has already been punished in our place. There's no further punishment to be, to be made. So don't ever conclude that because you got sick, because your child died, because your relationship failed, because you lost your job, that God is punishing you. And in fact, that may be Satan talking. Uh, Satan loves to give the, guilt, uh, the gift of guilt. Guilt is the gift that keeps on giving, you know. And uh, Satan... Uh, loves condemnation. And when that voice of condemnation and accusation comes to you, uh, that's not God speaking. That's, that's Satan speaking. And, uh, and he does that to keep us in a box and neutralize us for the things of God. Here, here's an, uh, so don't, include, don't conclude that God is punishing you because you run into a time of, of suffering or, or hardship. Here's an, uh, sort of an exception. Not really, but sort of. If you're engaged in an ongoing pattern of sinful behavior, if you, if you know that you're being disobedient in, in a major area of your life and that God has made, made that clear to you and, and you choose to, to do that anyway, God will get your attention. He will bring you back from your detour into darkness and it may be painful. But if you're a child of God, that's not punishment. That's, that's chastening. In, in Hebrews, God says... Uh, the writer says that uh, God chastens those whom he loves uh, to, to uh, pull us back to himself. He, he loves us and he, and he doesn't want us taking those kinds of detours. Remember Jonah? Mark preached about Jonah a short time ago and Jonah tried to run away from God, uh, what God uh, told him to do. And, uh, and God responded and, 
And uh, first Jonah found himself in a storm, and then he found himself in a fish, and then he found himself barfed up on the beach. And then he still had to go to, to Nineveh and preach in the same clothes without so much as a breath mint. Remember that? Yeah. So, so God will bring us back. And, uh, you know, every once in a while I have, I have an occasion to, to confront somebody. And uh, uh, one example would be, uh, um, this is a Matthew 18 kind of a confrontation, where as a, as a pastor and an elder I have an obligation to go speak to somebody about uh, something they're doing. And, and in some cases it has to do with a husband who's being unfaithful to his wife. And I become aware of it, and, and I, I go to talk with that person, and I, I approach them uh, humbly and um, um, as much in, in the, the, the spirit as I, as I can, but sometimes they're, def- they're uh, repentant. And if they're repentant, the marriage can be restored. And, and if they're defiant, I, I tell them, look, I'm going to pray that God will change your mind. But I have to warn you, it may be painful. So you call me when you want me to stop praying. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't usually take long for, for that to happen. Here's the bottom line in this area, folks. If you are walking with God daily, if you are in God's word and you're in prayer, if you're keeping short accounts with regard to the sins that, that we all do, uh, along, with, uh, uh, in, along the lines of uh, 1 John 1, 9, where, where he says, uh, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you're keeping short accounts in that, day, in, in that way, uh, then uh, don't assume that when hardship and difficulty come that, that God is punishing you. Uh, ask him instead to show you what his purpose is in, in that and what he's trying to teach you through it. So where do pain and suffering come from? Why does God allow it? In our, in our lives, um, the question is uh, how we'll respond to it. Well, first of all, in, uh, in creation itself, creation has been broken and marred by sin. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, the impact went far beyond mankind's disrupted relationship with God, and it extended into creation itself. It disrupted God's creative order. You see, God's creative order was perfect and, and the Garden of Eden was perfect. There, there weren't any floods in the Garden of Eden. There weren't any tornadoes. There wasn't any cancer. There weren't any fault lines in the earth. Uh, God's creation was perfect and, and those things began uh, when, when, sin was, uh, when sin infected our, our relationship with God and, and the universe as well. The uh, example in, in, of uh, Typhoon Haiyan in, in the Philippines on November 8th. Last count that, that I was aware of, there are over 4,000 bodies there so far. Over 10,000 people have been displaced and are, and are homeless. God is not punishing the Philippines. Uh, that, that is a, what we call a natural catastrophe, which is really an unnatural capa- uh, catastrophe because it is not something that God ever intended or, or created. It is a disruption of uh, God's created order. And disasters kill good people and bad people. They, create, they kill Christians and non-Christians alike. Romans 8.22 tells us that creation groans while it waits the final redemption from the effects of sin. That the creation itself will be free, God tells us in, in Romans 8.21 and 22. That, uh, that it awaits the, the same freedom that the children of God 
have received because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the end, God promises a, a new heaven and a new earth without uh, all these things that we see in our broken creation now. And, and what was wrong will be set right, and what was lost will be restored. But right now we, we live in a fallen world. Well, uh, suffering and pain also come directly from Satan, who Jesus said was in control of this world, and he's, he's constantly trying to kill and destroy God's people. Uh, Jesus said Satan's mission is he comes to kill and destroy. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We remember, don't we, the Old Testament story of Job. And, uh, and Satan inserted himself in that situation, took Job's health, took his family, uh, took his wealth, and uh, took everything but his life, all, all with God's approval for his purpose, all of which we don't understand. But Satan did that directly. We might ask, well, why doesn't God protect us? Well, he does, as a matter of fact, and, and much more than we know. God does protect us or none of us would be here. Because believe me, Satan would wipe out the children of God and the church of God in a second if God permitted that. Uh, but he doesn't. Sometimes we, uh, we get a glimpse. We won't know all the ways that God protected us until we get to heaven and God kind of rewinds the tape for us and we can see all of that. But every once in a while we get a glimpse, don't we? And we get a sense that uh, God is encouraging us and saying, I, I protected you there, I saved your life there. Uh, when it was a close call. I can remember back in my early days as a state trooper, some of you know that I was a trooper in my first career, and uh, I worked in Brighton as my first post, and one day I was off duty in Brighton, I, I had a dentist appointment, and, and uh, did my uh, dentist appointment. I, I usually came out and picked up an, an, an appointment slip at the counter right afterwards for my next visit, uh, but something happened there that had never happened before and never happened after that. I was delayed there for about um, five, six, seven minutes at the counter. The young lady who was there was preoccupied with something else, and she just left me waiting at the counter, which was very unusual. And so finally, I, I got my, my uh, slip, and, and my intention had been to, to walk down the block to where my wife had dropped off her watch, and it was being repaired at a jewelry store. And so I was going to uh, walk down there and, and pick up her watch. And uh, as I walked down the block, I got 100 yards or so from the jewelry store, something didn't look right. And, and I recognized that the door was open and there were police cars ar ar around already. And um, I, I learned that, uh, in fact, that there had just been an armed robbery there. And the three guys had walked in with guns and started herding the customers and the staff into the basement, presumably to kill them. And... Um, and one of the customers bolted and got out the front door and alerted the local cops and, and there was a high-speed chase and a shootout and uh, one of the bad guys was killed and a couple others were captured. Uh, but I was aware at that moment that God had protected me. He had built a, a, a six, seven-minute delay into my time at the dentist's office or I would have walked right into that armed robbery. And I, and I know, you know all the state, all state, state troopers and local officers uh, carry a weapon off duty and I, I had a heavy automatic pistol underneath my shirt and, I, and I'm sure I would have engaged those guys but I think God knew that I would have been killed in that confrontation and so he saved my life there 
He intervened in that way to save my life. I think he does that for all of us. I think he does it all the time. We just don't realize it because we can't see things clearly on that plane. But once in a while we get a glimpse, don't we? Once in a while we get a glimpse of of how God looks out for us. So uh, suffering and hardship comes from Satan. It also comes from sinful men who use their free will to choose to do evil and and create uh, suffering and sorrow and difficulty for us. A good example is uh, violent crime or or the, uh, the current persecution of the Christians in Iran, for example, persecuted by evil men who take away their families and their livelihood and sometimes their, their lives. And then finally, sometimes uh, suffering and, and hardship come from the consequences of our own actions. It's self-inflicted. You know, we, we treat someone else badly and, and we experience alienation and, and pain in the, in the relationship. Or we drive while we're drunk and we get arrested and... Uh, and go to jail or pay higher insurance premiums uh, for a while, we, we lie to someone and we're exposed and the trust is broken and the relationship is damaged. Uh, we, we commit adultery and, and we're exposed and we lose our family through alienation and, and divorce and, and so on. Now all of those things are, are, are examples of self-inflicted suffering, but we can be forgiven for all those things. Uh, God will forget all those things are covered by the the blood of Christ. But God will not always protect us from the consequences of those actions and, and will suffer sometimes because of things that we do there are self-inflicted. Well, why doesn't God just eliminate all evil and suffering in the world? In fact, why didn't he do it a long time ago? Why didn't he just wipe out all evil and, and suffering in this world? Folks have been asking that question for centuries. And if you've ever sat through a philosophy class uh, that's one of the cosmic questions that you spend a lot of time on. I, I think there are, of all the answers, I, I think the two best ones for me are, are this. Number one, uh, because he would have had to destroy us who still do evil things, even though we're children of God, and even though we're followers of Jesus Christ, from time to time we still sin, don't we? And God loves us too much to destroy us. If he were going to wipe out all evil, he would have to wipe out us. And he decided a long time ago he wasn't going to do that. He was going to redeem and restore us instead. Because at, at creation, he, he could have, uh, simp- at, at the fall, he could have simply vaporized the whole works and started over again. Let's sweep off the table and start over. But he didn't do that. He loved us too much for that. The other important reason I think God waits for that in his timing to, to destroy evil and set everything right is, is because if God had eliminated all evil, Jesus could not have been crucified by evil men. We could, have not been, we could have not been declared not guilty because of that sacrifice and become his children. His crucifixion by evil men was part of God's plan. In uh, Acts 2, uh, Luke tells us that uh, Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, um, the other reason was that uh, God hasn't destroyed all evil is because he wouldn't have been able to send his son to be killed by, by evil men. And, and so the Bible tells us after the final judgment, at the end of time, God will set everything right. But right now, we have to live in a, in a fallen and a broken world. So what do we need to know about how God uses suffering in our, our lives? Uh, first of all, that it's not random. It's, uh, it's suffering for a purpose, and then he has a purpose in, in everything that happens to us. 
In fact, everything that happens to us, even those hardships that are self-inflicted or that are evil, uh, intended by someone else to do us, to do us harm, uh, are turned by God to become part of his eternal plan for us for good. There are no accidents or coincidences in the life of a child of God. Paul tells us that in, in Romans 8, 28 and 29, where he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For God foreknew, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Understand that the good that we're talking about here is not uh, our comfort or convenience. It, it's something uh, much more uh, from an eternal perspective. We tend to think in terms of our a temporary perspective, our, our earthly perspective. God thinks in terms of eternal perspective. It is about shaping and molding us into the image of Jesus Christ, transforming us into Christ's image. After our salvation, God's purpose for us became shaping and molding us into the, into the instruments that he needs to carry out uh, his purposes in this world and the next, and that happens largely through hardship and suffering. Tim Keller, in, in the book, uh, Walking Through Pain and, and Suffering, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says, God loves us so much that he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. God loves us so much that he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we're like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel which hurt us so much are what make us perfect. The suffering in this world is not the failure of God's love for us, it is that love in action. So everything is for a purpose. Understanding who God is and what he is doing in our lives helps us to change our attitude toward what happens to us. Uh, change our attitude toward suffering. And that's why James encourages us to consider it pure joy. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, uh, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or endurance or steadfastness and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking. And God's goal for us is, is spiritual maturity, the image of Jesus Christ and notice that God uses the same tool to accomplish that in, in our lives, that is, suffering, as he did in Jesus' life. Jesus learned humanness through suffering. We learn Christ-likeness through suffering. Same tool that, uh, that uh, God used with his own son. Here's an example. My... Uh, in August of uh, 2011, I got a diagnosis of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I had cancer. That's one of those moments when you, uh, you really decide what you believe about God, isn't it? Some of you have been through that. And, uh, and as I thought through that, I thought, well, uh, what do I know about God? I know, first of all, that, that he's all-powerful and that nothing can happen to me without his approval. I know, I know secondly, that he loves me beyond anything that I can comprehend. And, and, and thirdly, I, I know that, that he's, he, he's intending everything that happens to me for my good. So, so knowing those three things, what do I really have to worry about? I mean, he's either going to heal me or he's going to take me home, right? And it, it, that frees me up to ask God, 
what are you trying to teach me, Lord? What are you trying to teach me through what's happening to me right now? And how do you, how do you intend to use this experience in my life and the, the lives of the, the people around him? Show me those things, God. So those are the, that's, what, that's what I prayed. Show me what it is that you want me to see here. Well, God uses suffering to remove the distractions of life and, and uh, also to deepen our relationship with him as well. Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower that he says in Mark 4, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Unfruitful meaning we fail to develop the character of Christ, number one. Unfruitful also means that we fail to accomplish the unique purposes that God has for us in our life and in the lives of other people around us. You see, Satan's mission is to preoccupy us with the, the distractions of life so as to neutralize us for God's purposes. You, you can reach the end of your life and find you, you had the ladder up against the wrong wall. John Eldridge, in uh, Walking with God, puts it this way. He says, The sorrows of our life are in great part his, that meaning God's weaning process. We give our hearts over to so many other things, so many things other than God. We look to so many other things for life. I know I do, especially the very gifts that he himself gives to us. And they become more important to us than he is. That's not the way it's supposed to be. As long as our happiness is tied to things that we can lose, we're vulnerable. The, the truth, this truth is core to the human condition and to understanding what God is doing in our lives. We really believe that God's primary reason is to provide us with happiness, to give us a good life. It doesn't occur to us that our thinking is backward. It doesn't even occur to us that God is meant to be our all. And until he is our all, we're subhuman. So God uses suffering and hardship to strip away everything in our lives that we put in his place. God also uses suffering and our example in suffering to lift up his name, that is, draw attention to him and to draw other people to faith in Jesus Christ. Sparrow, Center, uh, Sparrow Cancer Center nurse that I interacted with while I was getting radiation treatments at Sparrow said, to, said this to me. She said, it's easy to tell the Christians here they're the ones with hope. And she, she said, the, the others have only despair, but the Christians have hope. I asked God how he was going to use this cancer in my life and and then when I, the first time I walked into uh, Sparrow Cancer Center in the waiting room there, there was a young, uh, not a young guy, there was a guy about my own age uh, sitting up against the wall with his head back, eyes closed, and uh, he had a Harley Davidson cap on, I noticed. And I always liked motorcycles as well, so um, I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, Gary, he's one of the reasons you're here. So I, I struck up a conversation with him about motorcycles, first of all, he was a guy who was uh, suffering from throat cancer. He was taking not only chemo, but radiation at the same time. And he, he looked like he'd been dragged behind a truck. He had a feeding tube, and he was just in awful shape. And, and in excruciating pain, his face was just etched with pain. Uh, but we developed a friendship over the weeks that we were there together. And, uh, until I, and I prayed with him several times. And, and ultimately, uh, he sent me a late-night email, and he said, he said, Gary, I, I don't know what it is that you have, this great peace that you have in the face of cancer. But he said, whatever it is that you have, 
you need to explain to me how to get the same thing. And so I was able to explain the gospel to him. And, uh, and he survived. God healed him. And, and he's, uh, he's riding Harleys now again. We're still Facebook friends and we, we correspond. But uh, the point is that God uses the hardship and difficulty in our lives. He intersects us with other people so that we can have an impact for the kingdom. The point is that our suffering is very often not about us. We tend to be preoccupied with what's happening with us, but it's not about us. It's about um, other people around us. God uses suffering in our lives to prepare us for this life and, and the next one. He, he comforts us so we can comfort others here on earth. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Uh, cancer, I realized at one point, was part of my equipping for ministry. What hardships and difficulties have each of you gone through that God intends to use as part of your equipping for ministry uh, to comfort and encourage other people who are going through the same thing? Secondly, he uses suffering in our lives to, to prepare us for heaven for life with him in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This further explains verse 12, what God's trying to accomplish with us. Help us to trust him enough to overcome. Uh, the same way in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles, that is in life, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You see, how we suffer matters not just here, but for what we will experience in eternity, something that we don't fully understand. So how do we walk with God in a way that matters for eternity? You know, uh, suffering automatically doesn't accomplish anything for eternity. We, we need to collaborate with God in that. How do we do that? Well, first of all, you prepare yourself before the crisis. You don't wait till it hits you. Let God strengthen you through daily time in his word, in prayer, in fellowship and teaching and worship with the people of God on a regular basis. If you wait till the crisis comes, you will not have the spiritual stamina to endure and, and you'll dissolve into despair. Secondly, recognize that God is always with you, even if it doesn't feel like it. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that promise is for all time. Allow yourself and, and others opportunities to, to grieve and to mourn. Um, Paul didn't say in Thessalonians uh, not to sorrow. He said, we sorrow not as those who have no hope. We still sorrow. It's okay to feel grief. It's okay to cry when we're hurt. And when we lose someone, it's human, it's necessary, and it's not unspiritual. And we need to allow time and space for that. Be wise about how you comfort people. They, they need to know that you care more than they need us preaching at them or explaining theological issues to them. Don't try to explain God's purposes. We, we can't presume to know why God has allowed certain suffering into another person's life. And then stay in God's word every day, whether you feel like it or not. And, and you may not 
feel like getting into the Word and praying when you're in the middle of the crisis. Uh, but it's important. It is medicine and it is life. Paul says, set your mind on things above. That is, God's Word and your heart will follow. Choose what we think about. Let suffering drive you to prayer. James said in James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Prayer is God's antidote, God's prescription for pain. He says in uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's our part of it. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is the conduit by which we pass God our pain. He passes us back his peace. And then finally, suffer in community. Friends don't let friends suffer alone. It's no place to be a lone ranger. God intends the church to be a community of consolation. And a community of consolation and new hope is a good example of that. We, we number one, lift each other up in prayer. Number two, we come alongside each other in practical ways to help and, and comfort and encourage. I'm going to close with a quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know anything about her, you know that she was a young woman who, who was uh, crippled in a diving accident when she was 17, broke her neck, and she's been a quadriplegic for over 45 years and in tremendous pain. This is what she says about the place that God has her right now. She says, Yes, I pray that my pain might be removed, that it might cease, but more so I pray for the strength to bear it, the grace to benefit from it, and the devotion to offer it up to God as a sacrifice of praise. To this point, as I pen this chapter, he's chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. He has a plan and a purpose for my time on earth. He's the master, artist, or sculptor. And he's the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him what tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me? and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so that I can state without equivocation that it is always his will to heal me of every physical affliction? I am his poem. Do I have the right to say? No, Lord, you need to trim line number two and brighten up lines two and three, lines three and five. They're just a bit dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? Friend, you may be going through a time of wounding right now, and if you are, take heart, because your heart is being set to God's. And there is no saving work apart from pain. Your life will produce so much more fruit from it all, fruit that you probably won't even see or know about. Every day of our short lives, even every hour, has eternal consequences for good or ill. Eternity and the way we'll live in it is somehow shaped by our moment-by-moment -moment responses to the life we have before us to live right now. Folks, it matters how we suffer. What hardships and difficulties has God called you to walk through for his sake? What is he teaching you through it? What fruit has your suffering produced for eternity in your life and the lives of the, the people around you that he's intersected your life with? Let's determine to walk with God through whatever he calls us to in his power and through his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for my brother Ken and for his powerful story and, and for his example and the way that you're using him in the lives of the people around him. Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us, first of all, to trust you, not, not just if you heal us, not just if you restore our marriage, not just if you bring our, our son or daughter back from the foolishness that they're involved in. Whatever it is, Lord, we, we pray that we'd trust you beyond that, that we would trust you no matter what. And we pray that you'd empower us to do that by your Holy Spirit. Uh, grow our faith so that we can trust you no matter what. And, and we ask you, Lord, uh, to do all this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior who suffered for us. In Jesus' name, amen.